Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. To be clear, Zelecki's intervention is primarily methodological. Since the book looks at the keywords revolution, knowledge production, Ethiopia, and at the primary source of students' journals, committee reports, etc., one might be forgiven for presuming that it represents a study of the Ethiopian student movement, of radical print culture in Africa, or simply an intellectual history of modern Ethiopia. But the book isn't so much about any of those things as it is a study through them. Such subtlety and audacity are effectively performed in the repetition of the book's opening line, this book tells the story of how to tell the story of revolution in the third world. Welcome to New Books in African Studies. My name is Madina Thiam. I'm your host. Uh, The commentary I just read was an excerpt from a review that Wendell Marsh wrote of Eleni Sentimezeleke's book, Ethiopian Theory, which I thought really saliently captured uh, what the work was about. Um, But we'll get to discuss all of this in depth and in detail with the author right now on today's podcast. She is here to talk about Ethiopian Theory, which came out last year with Brill in 2019. A paperback version of the book is just about to come out in October 2020 with Haymarket, which I encourage everybody to get. That's also the cheaper version. Uh, And today we'll just enjoy a conversation with the author, Eleni Zeleke. Welcome on the show. Uh, Thank you for having me this morning. All right. So can you begin by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit more about um, some of your background, personal and academic? Sure. Um, So... Um, my training is in social and political thought from a program at York University um, in Canada. Um, and so I think that's the first thing that's important to note is the interdisciplinary training that I have. And that program in uh, social and political thought is really trying to um, do a critique of political science, um, but also a critique of the ways in which philosophy is studied without having a history. So um, I think my book really represents the kind of training that one gets um, in this graduate program in social and political thought. Um, Mm -hmm. So myself, I was born in Ethiopia, um, but I left Ethiopia when I was, you know, a few months old, basically. Um, and my parents were in exile from Ethiopia. So the Ethiopian revolution is something that um, was always talked about in my house, but was never something that I personally experienced in in terms of living in Ethiopia, although I would always go to Ethiopia in the summer to visit family and that kind of thing. Um, So part of what the book is about is grappling with this thing called the Ethiopian revolution that was such a um, prominent uh, part of, of my, the, 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 the discussion in my family household, but is, was sort of like invisible to me in many ways. So I experienced the Ethiopian revolution um, as a kind of ghost, right? It, it inhabited my body. It was part of the family conversation, but I didn't actually experience it directly in many ways. And I, and I think the book is really trying to grapple with the ways in which um, something like a revolution can exist um, and bear down on your your very existence without necessarily being um, directly affecting you. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, yeah it, no, it makes a lot of sense. And you see these ghosts coming back throughout the book in, in the method and the approach that you take to um, entering the subject. Um, and also in how certain topics from the revolution keep coming back in Ethiopian politics. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to this. Um, and I also really liked, like, I think it was a really good way of entering the description of your book to talk about the kind of training that you got. Because um, indeed, as, as Wendell's review highlighted and, and other reviewers highlighted as well, um, this is not a book... This is not a book to enter expecting to to get a, a book of social sciences, a political science, right? It's 
it's more about your inquiry into these things and how the social sciences right. affected the revolution and affected the lives of people. So I think it's it's something that's that's really helpful. Like that kind of training that you got helps understand better what the book does pretty much. I mean, I think that the book is actually a critique of the social sciences and it's a critique of political science and the ways in which um, those disciplines have tried to deal with, uh, with Ethiopia and has created something called Ethiopian studies as well, or contributed to creating something called Ethiopian studies. Um, you know, the, the students that I deal with in the book see themselves as scientists and see themselves as very much um, bringing the social sciences to Ethiopia. And it's a kind of project um, that is juxtaposed to the ways in which knowledge has been produced traditionally in, in, in Ethiopia, either through the um, church, through the kinds of manuscripts that were produced by the Ethiopian church, or, you know, other forms of, of knowledge production. Um, so, so the students really understood themselves as modernists and using the social science as a tool to combat um, traditional knowledge production. And um, ra- while I'm not about, while my book isn't necessarily about returning to those different forms of, of traditional knowledge production, it certainly is a critique of the ways in which social sciences has been, has transformed um, knowledge production in Ethiopia. Hmm. I, well, that's so rich. And we're going to come back to that towards uh, right. a little bit later in the podcast. I want us, I guess right now to, it might be helpful, especially for people who are less familiar with the environment to set the stage a little bit of Ethiopia's politics uh, from the 1960s onwards, which is more or less the, time period that your book tackles. Can you lay out for us a little bit of that history, that background? Uh, so you want me to sort of recount Ethiopian history from the 1960s going forward? Sure. Right? I mean, yeah, political history, <laughs> like I, which is which is long, but just, just to give a, kind of a background uh, for people who are less familiar with it. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what I would say in order to begin was that um, basically... I mean, we all know about Ethiopia in terms of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia um, and the occupation after the Italians left of Ethiopia by the British. And then the British sort of bring back Haile Selassie, who was in exile in England to be um, the ruler of Ethiopia, the king of kings, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and he is, he's often posited as a kind of um, leader who's linked to a, a traditional form of governance in Ethiopia, although... I would rather theorize Haile Selassie himself as the product of all kinds of modernist uh, machinations. But in any case, uh-huh. what you have in Ethiopia from 1945 until uh, 1974 is a kind is Haile Selassie ruling over the country and trying to bring Ethiopia into um, into global a global capitalist world, right? Um, and he's actually very much transforming. Uh, local systems of government go- governance in Ethiopia while he's doing that, um, setting up a parliamentary system, um, decentralizing power, um, creating things like a national language, establishing a constitution, and so on. Um, and in many ways, he's doing that in the name of tradition. But as I said, um, I don't think um, he's that traditional at all, right? Because the, the problem for him is how do I how does he incorporate Ethiopia into, into these global capitalist structures? Um, so what, what ends up being produced in Ethiopia is actually an extremely hierarchical system with, um, you know, Haile Selassie at the top and then a sort of cavalry of people who might be identified as sort of um, feudal lords. I mean, some of the literature would describe them as that um, and who are ex- who exact obligations from the peasantry in ways that are pretty exploitative and, and again, um, hierarchical. Um, but, I, you know, even at this time, you're having a transformation of so-called traditional feudal relationships um, into something that can align with, with, with capitalist production. So what you have in the 1960s is um, a group of students who are responding to the kind of modernization project that is undertaken by somebody like Haile Selassie um, and really questioning the the nature of that modernization project. And these students are actually students who are produced by the very same modernization project that 
Haile Selassie has undertaken. So there are students who are being identified um, as bright, um, you know, in the various modern schools that Haile Selassie has established. He's attempting to create at this time a kind of modern bureaucracy that can um, manage the state in a modern way. Um, and so he's identifying bright students. He's sending them abroad. They're coming to you know, universities like Columbia, you know, many liberal arts colleges in the U.S., et cetera. They're getting a kind of training um, in the social sciences that you know, is kind of linked to Western knowledge production. And through their experience of being on these various university campuses, they begin to develop a critique of Haile Selassie um, and his regime. And and in many ways, the student movement is offering a different type of modernization project, a different approach to development than the one that Haile Selassie has undertaken. And they believe that they can use Marxism and the language of kind of socialism to both critique Haile Selassie, but to offer an alternative to the type of program that he's undertaken. So you you have a very vigorous debate that's happening um, in the 1960s in these various student journals that are produced by um, Ethiopian students on campuses all over the world, from Beirut to New York to Moscow to Algiers. Um, you have Ethiopian students engaging in a very vigorous debate, and they're aware of each other's publications. They're, they're uh, debating each other across publications. They are having meetings in, you know, world the worldwide Ethiopian Student Union is having meetings in different locations around the world, from Berlin to New York again to L.A. Um, and they're really trying to come up with a program um, for Ethiopia. At the same time, they're having vicious, vicious fights about what this program should look like. And one of the key um, debates or two of the key sort of issues that come up for the students is how to deal with the question of land, who should own land, what does it mean to return land to the tiller? Um, and what, what does it mean to have a land reform program so as to make agriculture more productive in Ethiopia? So that's one issue. The other issue is what gets called <clears throat> the nationalities question, which in, for most people would be understood as the question of ethnicity. So how do you deal with the different ethnic groups in Ethiopia? How do, how do you deal with the fact that you have multiple language groups? You have a, at least 80 language groups in Ethiopia. How do you bring all of these people into a modern nation state? And do you do that through a decentralized system where people still can have schooling and education and conduct commerce through their local languages? Or do you create a kind of homogenous Ethiopian identity through something like Amharic um, and even through... Um, you know, under Haile Selassie, that attempt to create an Ethiopian identity is through Amharic and it's through Christianity and so on. So there's a debate about, you know, how to how to deal with this question of, of, all, of all of these ethnicities um, and so on. And that's that debate, actually, I would say is something that has definitely um, resonated throughout multiple generations in Ethiopia. Um and it's still like the, the fiery question that plagues the Ethiopian state to this day. So I would say many of the right. ways in which the problem of ethnicity is being dealt with is also because of the way it was shaped through the student movement, right? So the student movement was successful in many ways because in the 1974 revolution, the ways in which some section of the student movement talk about the nationalities question, um, one won over the state. I mean, Haile Selassie was toppled in 1974. Um, part of the student movement, mo uh, they moved into power. Um, you have many of the people who are writing the student journals then advising the state on how to articulate things around the land question, the nationalities question. But even the people who opposed uh, the, the revolution or the, the military junta that took over after 1974, are the, the rebel groups that, that oppose that regime are also part of the student movement and are the same people who were having those debates in those student journals, you know, prior to the 1974 revolution. So they go into the bush, they become rebels, they become Maoists, um, and so on. And they fight this kind of more centralized form of socialism that is, um, that takes, takes hold of the state after 1974. Um, and after 1974, the way that the nationalities question is answered is to is to not really answer it, is to just create a kind of centralized uh, socialist state 
um, where everybody's fighting towards, you know, world revolution. And so, you know, it is seen, the nationalities question or ethnicity is seen as kind of unimportant or distracting to the, to the, to the larger goal. So you have these rebels who are saying, actually, in a peasant economy in Ethiopia, the nationalities question has to be forefronted because that's the primary way in which people experience their everyday life is through their ethnic group, et cetera, et cetera. And that critique becomes the way in which they fight uh, the Derg regime, the military junta between 1974 and 1990, the, the early 90s, um, when obviously all regimes that were aligned to the Soviet Union fall. And actually that the side of the student movement that articulated the nationalities question in terms of respecting people's language rights and so on, um, that, that side won over the state. Um, and by 1994, you have a new constitution where the right, where uh, that new constitution is, um, is brought forth in the name of the nations, nationalities, and peoples of Ethiopia. So we have a decent, oh. we have a decentralized system that's established after 1994 and the constitution is actually, you know, very much written, as I said, in the name of these these various groups and the right to self-determination of all the nations, nationalities and peoples of Ethiopia are guaranteed in that new constitution in 1994. Um, and and I think the other thing to point out, though, is that that language of nations, nationalities and peoples really comes out of language developed by the Soviet Union to, to talk about the ethnic problem. Um, and in the debates that you that are being had within the student movement, they're really taking on that language of the Soviet Union, so that you never see the language of ethnicity um, in the student movement uh, conversations. It's always about nations, nationalities, and peoples, and that language is very interesting because it's very evolutionary. So you know you have you have tribes who are really the people you know who are understood as peoples, and then um, you have nationalities, and then eventually you evolve into a nation. And so the various groups in Ethiopia are understood to be in various um, states of development towards becoming nationalities. And that's, that's the name, that's the way in which the ethnicity problem is framed even today in Ethiopia. So that constitution governs, um, you know, the ethnic problem um, in Ethiopia today. All right. I think, I think that's enough in terms of a, a history. Yes. <laughs> it's, I mean, we could keep going for, for a really long time. It's, it's so interesting. Well, I mean, many things. Um, one, because, uh, you know, I'm thinking, I mean, we were talking right about recording the podcast and I was telling you about um, currently in, in right now in Mali, we're getting through yet another, I wouldn't call that a revolutionary moment, but um, we just had a coup, a moment where a lot of people are talking about refoundation of the state, re reorganizing, you know, like erasing everything that was before and creating something new. Mm -hmm. um, and we're seeing a lot of discussions about, uh, you know, the politicians or the political class should listen to what the researchers, what the social sciences have to say, you know, like their, their opinions are never taken into account. We should listen to the, to the researchers. They've, they've produced stuff in the social science. We should see like their studies and see how we can apply that to Mali. And as I was listening to you, it's so interesting because it's in the case you're describing, it's literally a case of like these student movements. They're the ones who then like take on, like, you know, seize the states and like take on the revolution and mm -hmm. and carry out, I guess, the, the things that they had theorized. Uh, and you also see the pitfalls of that. Right. And I guess that's a that's a crux of your critique, like how they they seize these social science concepts um, designed perhaps elsewhere and and appropriate it and 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 make Ethiopia fit into it, you know, um, at any cost, like like at any and all costs. I don't know that like that part is 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 really interesting. Um, and in a way, so you see these questions showing up today still as well mm -hmm. um, in the current like the current situation uh, uh, um, in Ethiopia and things that are happening currently in Ethiopian politics. I mean, these questions of land and this question of nationality keep coming back also, right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's enough. So I feel like your question had two two different parts to it. One is around the legacy of the social sciences and 
the other is just around like sort of um, current politics and the ways in which the land and nationalities question has been articulated. So just to say that I think one of the things that's interesting about Ethiopia is the ways in which um, every time you have a change of regime or every time you have kind of like opposition and um, you, know, you have an opposition movement, what they do is that they wield the social sciences as a kind of tool against the people that they're fighting. So I have a chapter in, in my book around social science as a battlefield. And literally, you can think about the social sciences in Ethiopia as part of a, a larger battlefield that is actually connected to, to uh, military strategy as much as it's uh, connected to um, epistemological maneuvers. Um, so, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is the ways in which different groups in Ethiopia will say, no, but I have greater access to the truth. There is a reality out there, you know, but you opposition person or you government person, you are deluded about the ways in which you understand reality. And I actually have discovered what reality is. And I can move towards a more perfect version of knowledge that you obviously, because of your mistaken orientation, are unable to move towards, right? And use that movement towards perfect knowledge as a kind of way to 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 have a battle against your 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 opponent, right? So it becomes the, the, the political field is also a field that people are struggling over truth, right? Um, and I thought this was so interesting because I kept on seeing this happening over and over again. And in and, and some ways, the book is about my own fatigue with the ways in which truth is constantly being mobilized and demobilized by various groups uh, according to who has access to more truth at a particular moment, right? And I was like, how do we get out of this um, conundrum, this impasse where um, the only way for me to make a maneuver is to say, well, I have a better truth, Right. Um, and I actually think that's part, part of the problem of what's going on in Ethiopia today. So just to come back to the second part of your question, then, um, you know, what, I think what, what has led to the particular moment that we are in today is in 2014, um, you started to have a lot of protests against the expansion of Addis Ababa, which is the capital city, um, into agricultural lands and into what was um, into lands that are um, probably um, cultivated by Oromo uh, people. So Oromos are a particular ethnic group in Ethiopia. And so you had protests against the expansion of Addis Ababa um, by the Oromo group. And it was really about, you know, land in Ethiopia is still uh, access to land in Ethiopia is still guaranteed in the constitution. So land is not privatized. Everybody has the right to cultivate land in Ethiopia. Um, and yet there was a way in which um, at the at the city level, legislation was um, approved such that in the name of development, um, land could actually be privatized and given to uh, people with capital to build skyscrapers and malls and and all of those kinds of things that you now see in Addis Ababa today. So you have this protest against that kind of development that is, on the one hand, a protest against the fact that land is supposed to be guaranteed, but that but that protest is done in the name of ethnicity or in the name of the Oromo people. Um, and so what you have in 2014 is a battle, again, over the terms established by the student movement around the access to land, around the fact that land should go to the tiller, around the fact that if people are being displaced from land, it's also about the ways in which people are being displaced from producing within their 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 ethnic group and so on. And in many ways, what what led us to the our, our crisis today is the fact that that protest was led in the name of, um, as I said, the nationalities question, and um, and in the name of the Aromo people. And so we were supposed to be reopening this question of how can be people be, how can nations, nationalities, and peoples in Ethiopia be guaranteed their rights? Um, and that's basically how um, the previous regime fell in Ethiopia in many ways, is that supposedly they were not upholding the very constitution that they um, brought into, into power, right? There, there, there was a kind of gap between the two. And yet, as soon as um, sort of Abiy Ahmed came into power, and, and as we see this more recently, 
Um, he has had to centralize power around him and he has had to shut down the question of the nation, well, shut, shut down the nationalities question and um, in the name of development, continue some of those programs that were undertaken by the previous regime. And so we've, we're in this really weird conundrum in Ethiopia, again, where um, somebody who came into power in the name of the nationalities question is now shutting down groups of people um, and saying they need to uh, work for the nation state rather than, um, you know, get get mired in making demands, particular demands for t- particular ethnic groups. Um, all right. Mm. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to... I want to shift gears a little bit uh, and get into, now that you really said that for us, I guess get into the, the, the crux of what the book is about. Um, we, we opened the podcast with this uh, short excerpt from that review that uh, Wendell wrote, which I wanted to ask you whether or not you thought did justice to your book. Um, because as I was telling you, for me, this is really what helped me enter actually the book that this is a book of theory. It's about, as you said yourself later on, like a, a critique of the social sciences and how they shaped um, so much of policies and politics in Ethiopia and also how Ethiopia is perceived. Uh, so I want to get a little bit more into that, uh, 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 into these uh, theoretical and method- methodological insights that uh, your sure. book brings in. Um, and I want to start with what you start with in the book, Tizita. So can you tell uh-huh. us about, can we talk about Tizita? Uh, what is it? And more importantly, what did you do with it in the book? Uh, that will help you, I, I think it help us understand a little bit more what your project was and why, what it is that you were trying to do. Sure. So, well, Tizita is just a very, very sad song on some levels. Um, and the most famous Tizita song is by Mahmoud Ahmed, who is a very famous uh, Ethiopian singer He did a Tizita song that he recorded perhaps just a few weeks after the 1974 revolution. It's 13 minutes long, and it's a very, very long lament about sort of what have we lost? Where are we going? Um, I think a, the, a typical lyric in the song goes something like, my Tizita is you, so my me- I don't have Tizita. So Tizita actually translates as memory. Um, or nostalgia. So it can be, it's often translated as both those terms in English, but it's also um, a genre of music making, but it's also a musical scale as well. So it's referring to multiple things at the same time. Um, And Amharic is one of those languages where every word has like five different meanings, depending on the context, right? right? People are always playing with with meaning, right? Um, So if you think about a lyric like my tizita is you, I don't have Tizita. My memory is you. I don't have memory. Um, that could be one rendition. Um, my my nostalgia is you. I don't have my nostalgia anymore. Or it could be referring to the actual form of the music because Tizita is a genre of music. It's also a musical scale. So maybe it's about the loss of form um, as much as it's about the loss of a memory or the, the loss of a loved one, right? And I think that in Ethiopia, people, like if you... Think about literary traditions in Ethiopia. People are often thinking about the relationship between form and content. And I think in the Tizita song, for me, what's striking is the relationship between um, form and content. But in any case, when I was writing the, the um, book, which started as a dissertation, I would spend a lot of time listening to Tizita in my attic in Toronto, being sad and sort of conjuring ghosts. Um, and conjuring the past. And I think that's what Tizita does in a way. It's a way of conjuring the past. But it's also a lament about, I guess, the loss of form and the loss of content. And it it questions the ways in which the past has come down to you as an inheritance. Um, And I was interested in thinking about um, the ways in which the past has come down to me as an an inheritance, Um, the sense of loss that I had um, in terms of relating to this inheritance. And to actually, to stay with that sense of loss, not to vanquish that loss, not to fill that loss with um, more facts or more social science knowledge, but to actually to think about loss as a place through which um, knowledge can be produced, right? And I think because Tizita is always showing us that there's a kind of gap between form and content, that it allowed me to think about the gap 
that is the silence that is produced by by an experience of loss. Um, yeah, I think in my writing, I'm trying to think about genre and form and the ways in which the past has come down to me um, and what it means to live with the past. But I think, you know, the other thing that Tizita alerts us to is that the past can erupt in the present in unexpected ways. Um, so if you can lose the memory of your lover, the form in which that memory comes to you can, is unstable and the past can erupt in in strange ways. And so the relationship between past and present is unstable, but also uncanny. So it's not something that you can control through just thinking you have access to the past as a stable thing. The past is not an object that you know exists in an archive that just you can go and collect and present to the world. The past is something that sort of erupts in unpredictable ways in the present. And so those are all the things I was trying to capture with that term. Yes. And, and um, I think that was a way to get out of the conundrum presented by the social sciences. Because the social sciences, in a way, you know, thinks about reality is out there. It think, it, reality is something that can be discovered. It can be, it, you know, yeah. we, can, we can perfect our scientific tools. And, and as I said before, we can perfect the, the kinds of knowledges that we produce. And, and every generation of scholars is supposed to produce better and better knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. In this quest towards perfection, I really wanted, and I think that's part of the battlefield that we see in Ethiopia when, when social sciences gets used as a tool against one's opponent. It's like, well, I have more perfect knowledge. And I really wanted to move out of that paradigm, um, not by simply becoming super subjectivist and being like, well, this is my experience and da-da-da-da-da, but actually to think about some, Tizita allows you to think about emotion, affect, feeling as both a collective experience, but as something that is uncanny and unstable at the same time. So those are the things that I was trying to do. Does that make sense? I hope yeah. I'm making sense to you. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, you did. Uh, and we, we were talking right before this, like I think what I what I found really great about this, this, this part of the, I mean, it's not one part of the book, it comes back throughout, but that, as you said, you really did get out of this conundrum of the social sciences that will study and reflect reality in as precise a manner as possible, or so is the, so is the intent at least. Um, And I thought it was, yeah, it was really great how you, you got out of this and also, we're really honest about this process, like, you know, how it came to you and how you were part of this. And this is how you experienced or how the revolution kept reverberating, like in your own experience, in your own body, um, etc. And how this, this, this informs how you write about Ethiopia and how you think about it. Um, so no, that was, that was, that was definitely, that's the part that struck the most, uh, for me in reading the book. And I think we'll have a lot for a lot of readers, uh, so want to explore these questions a little bit more. Okay. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I just to say that, you know, I start with my body and, and the experience of my body um, thinking about this revolution, but I take mm. my body not just as some kind of singular entity that is bounded, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the body as a set of relationships with other people and to think about the past as bearing down on me as a set of relationships rather than the past is bearing down on me as a kind of singular entity with clear with clear boundaries if that makes mm-hmm. yeah i think that's the thing so so i'm not trying to get away from like reality i just think that the way that reality exists within us is not exactly as this kind of object that is out there that is separate right. from the, the person who's doing the inquiry. And I don't think that's ever the case, even for the, the, the person who claims to be objective, right? Exactly. Yeah. Which is the big claim, right? Like, in, like that you have to study the, you study this object as objectively as possible. Uh, yeah, exactly. Big claim in social science. Can you tell us a little bit about the, so as we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, the paperback version of your book is about to come out uh, in a few weeks. Can you tell us about the book cover of that paperback version that's coming out with Haymarket soon? Sure. So um, the the book cover is um, it contain it's it's primarily a painting um, from Hamid Abdallah, who was a modernist painter um, in Egypt. Uh, I believe he was born probably around 1917, which is an auspicious year. Um, he died perhaps in the 1980s. He has this technique where he um, takes 
Arabic calligraphy and he transforms the, that calligraphy into human figures. Um, and um, the painting that I use in um, in in my on, as the cover of my book is called Defeat. Um, and I, I think it's actually playing with that with the word defeat in Arabic. Um, and it's just sort of these figures slouched over um, these bodies leaning on each other um, who are again in this way that I was describing um, my own body as a part of a collective experience um, that and, and to think of, of the body as unbounded and a set of relationships. But I, I like the idea of defeat too because I think it captures something about that whole region um, you know in the in the 1960s which is full of, kind of revolutionary fervor, and yet that fervor is being defeated in a series of coups and that kind of thing, yeah? So I, and I, you know, I think I wanted to, maybe I'm being a bit provocative in using an Egyptian painter on the cover of a book called Ethiopia in Theory. Obviously, there's a lot of, like, tensions between Egypt and Ethiopia right now around who owns Mm -hmm. the Nile waters, and what has struck me about that conversation about who owns the Nile waters is how little of that conversation has been about sort of people to people um, needs. Um, it's been about nation state versus nation state. Um, and right. obviously Ethiopia and Egypt are, are countries that have been imbricated in each other's histories for a long time. And so I wanted to maybe remind my readers and remind myself of that kind of interconnected history and the ways in which the third world was thought of in more international terms um, at a particular point and how we've, how far we've moved from that point as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Yeah, no, for sure. That's, that's definitely, and the current dispute, that's definitely how it's, it's, it's set as well, like Ethiopia and Egypt and, and what's Ethiopia being thought of as this, more African entity. I mean, Ethiopia occupies a particular place in Africa and in African studies, but so does Egypt, right? Uh, yeah. And you see that play out even in in, in this dispute right now. Yeah. Um, let's talk about let's talk about African studies and yeah. Black studies a little bit, um, because your book is a critique of the social science, and you try to you come up with a method of how to overcome some of the problems that you identified with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that um, we haven't seen as much of in African studies. Um, I think this is something that perhaps the project of Black Studies has taken on uh, a little bit better. So I guess I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about how you drew from each field, but also pushed back against perhaps some uh, um, developments in each field to build your method mm-hmm. in this book and in this project. Right. Right. So, I mean, one thing that I always would say to myself when I was doing my PhD was I was like, nobody wants to teach a black girl from Africa how to think about Africa. Right. <laughs> Some people will still go ahead and do it. But yes, you're right. right. <laughs> like, if you're a white woman, you will easily access a bunch of tools to do African studies. If you're a white man, I think that's also the case. Um but like, what does it mean for a black woman from Africa to actually study Africa? I think there's not a you know, we don't have a lot of examples. And even if you look at something like the history of the African Studies Association, black women do not occupy, um, you know, positions of relevance within that association, or perhaps more so now than before. Um, but, you know, black women have not, haven't really received prizes within that association or produced the, the literature um, that is associated with African studies, right? Um, although there's a lot of white women um, that are part of the legacy of, of African studies. So that was always interesting to me. Um, so African studies for me is something that is, you know, very different from black studies. It is, it's part of perhaps um, a colonial apparatus, or it definitely takes Africa as an object that is south of the Sahara that can be studied and that is, um, you know, primitive and um, where communities exist in these kind of um, local situations and we can study 
we can study these local uh, groups of people and produce sort of anthropological knowledge about them. And to me, African studies still operates in that kind of, you know, case study paradigm, um, if you will. And there's a way in which the problem of race is seen as a problem of the West um, and that, you know, we don't really need to take questions of race seriously in African studies. That's for those other people right. elsewhere, right? Right. Or it's or you're having too much of a you know American out, um, point of view if you try to bring up these questions of race into African studies. That's also something that yeah people con- get con- get a lot. Yeah. Right. Right. So that that seemed odd to me because, as I said before, my particular position was one that where I felt like. As an African black woman, I was not being given the tools to do African studies. So I think I, I went to, to black studies because black studies is really trying to think about the existence of black people in the world. Um, and um, it, black studies has a long critique of the social sciences and the problems of the social sciences um, in relation to black folks globally. Um, and um, I think the question of self-reflexivity is, is much bigger Um, in Black studies than it is in African studies. So even if race can be acknowledged as a problem in African studies, it's always technical. It's like, oh, let's have some more Black people on this committee, right? Right. (laughs) Um, You know, that kind of thing. It's never a question of how do I approach the study of Africa thinking about race? How do I um, develop different kinds of methodologies? How do I write differently given the history of race in Africa? Right. So those questions of how do I write? What is the proper form for for studying Africa? What is the proper form for writing about Africa? Those are not questions that have been brought up in African studies at all. But those are questions that are endemic to to black studies. So I was just like, well, this is where I need to go in order to to figure out what I'm doing um, in my own book. And so I situate my book as somewhere between black studies and African studies. The problem with, with black studies, because there has been this separation between the continent and the African diaspora, black studies, unfortunately, has not um, developed a lot of um, research or literature that deals with the continent as such. It's, it is very right, much absolutely. the diaspora experience. And so so it's a bit strange for me because I think on the, at the level of method, Um, I'm probably talking more to black studies, but in terms of like who studies the continent, black studies doesn't really actually study the continent. Right. So it's, it's a strange dilemma. I, I, I'm hoping that my work in some ways bridges those gaps. And I, and I can, I hope to continue doing that in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it really does bridge the gap. And um, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I absolutely agree with 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 what you said. Like in in principle, it's two fields that don't really talk to each other, um, and there's definitely uh, like a lot of the methods of black study, which are black studies, which are really fantastic to study Africa. Don't really consider Africa like the, like continental Africa. Uh, yeah. It's often diasporic. It's often the Atlantic, um, and I think it's great that you're doing that with your work, and that hopefully we'll see more of that. Um, You know, I think increasingly a lot of projects try to take that on, but it's 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 something that we we definitely need more of. Right. I will say that I grew up in the Caribbean, so I grew up in Guyana and Barbados, and I think that my research orientation comes out of sort of living in those places. Um, and I think the commitment of intellectuals in the Caribbean has always been about uh, questioning the ways in which knowledge has been produced. And so right. I think that actually. I'm a Caribbean Ethiopian scholar. I took all the, my experience of all being right. in the Caribbean and the ways questions are posed. And I, I was like, let me take it to Ethiopia and see what happens. <laughs> and it's great. And the result is great. Yeah, Caribbean Ethiopian scholar. I like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, who are some of the people or what are some of the kinds of projects or kinds of writings that you think also like your book, Are starting to like get at that or tease at that or or inspire you um, in bridging bridging these gaps. Like, are there other, yeah, other writers, other projects, other writings um, that inspire you in this way, and I think also take on that project that you're trying to take on. Sure, I mean, so I think you know when um, 
sort of when I first came across Kawani, which was a journal that is was produced in Nairobi, it was started by Binyavanga um, in the early 2000s. Um, that that journal actually blew my mind, and they did it. They did an issue on the Kenyan elections um, and the in 2008 when there was a lot of violence um, and the ways in which they tried to think about sort of political violence was so different from um, the kinds of things we see in you know, the political science literature, which always felt so empty to me. And I was just like, you know, I, I don't really know how to deal with political science because ultimately what it tells us is that Africans have pathologies um, and, and that becomes the story over and over again. I mean, it can be said in very fancy language. And what Kwani <laughs> was, was doing was really thinking about these questions um, through poetry, through art, through photography, um, and as a lived experience that belonged to the people that were writing about it. And so, and there was something irreverent about Kwani that um, was amazing to me. Um, and I think the other site, um, the other sort of literary platform that's important has been important to me is Chimurenga, um, which is a literary platform that's based in South Africa um, that does really funky stuff. So the most recent project that they did was um, looking at the uh, Festac, um, which was a festival in a Pan African festival that happened in Nigeria in I believe it was 1977. I might have the year. It was. No, no, it is 77 year, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and the ways in which they, try, I mean, the question that Chimurenga poses is, um, how, do, how do they pose it? They say, you know, what if um, the past has to cut, no, what if the present has to catch up with a past that is, you know, continuing to haunt the present? And I, and they, they really play with time and they think of their publications as these time machines that are scrambling the archive and, and doing funky things about how we pose questions. Um, but what I really like about both Chimarenga and Kawani is that they're really irreverent about how they go about an, um, answering questions that are important to to the continent. And when I read something like Chimarenga, the Festac Project is one, but also they, they had a book recently come out, which is an anthology of writing ab- around Kabila, posing the question of who killed Kabila. Um, mm-hmm. And again, the writing is so different from what we're used to within the social science literature, but it f- felt more truer, or at least the writing is more of an, a, a proper interrogation into kind of the African existence, even if it doesn't necessarily come up with like answers or solutions as such, right? At least it's posing good questions. Um, and we, we so often don't know how to pose good questions in African studies. So, I mean... Where I look for good writing is not within African studies. It's actually within these venues. I feel like Chimarenga is doing what African studies should do in a way that African studies does not seem to be doing at all. Um, so there's that. I, I, mean, I, hope, huh? <laughs> Sorry, I said, I hope African studies is listening. Um, and right. we'll be reading Chimarenga. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, and I, I think it's it's so great that you started with Ethiopia to to do that for your project because... You know, out of all places in Africa, almost, that's definitely a place that everybody is appropriated, like in Pan-African discourse, in Africanist discourse, in, in, in all kinds of environments, you know, everybody has sort of like taken on and appropriated Ethiopia and then made it to fit into whatever project they had. Uh, so it was kind of an ideal place, I think, to, right. to start you, for, for you with that, that project. Of, uh, yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because I don't try to be like, they're all right or wrong. I'm just like, well, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about Rasta, Rastafarianism and the ways in which they deal with Ethiopia, there's definitely mm-hmm. a truth to the story that they're telling. But right. it's also a limited truth, especially if you contrast that truth with like, you know, an aroma. I mean, literally, you have Rastas in an aromo region in... Um, in Ethiopia who are like, this is Haile Selassie's land. And the Romans are like, no, Haile Selassie, you know, yeah. stole that land and he's a colonizer, right? And then the Rastas are like saying to the Romans, y'all are Babylon system. So, I mean, wow. that's really interesting in terms of his, how historical narratives clash. But my, my point is not to say that the Rastas are wrong or the Romans are right or anything, but to actually think about, again, the ways in which the past has lived as an experience for Rastas and the ways in which the past has lived as, as an experience for the aromas. And is there some way in which if we pay attention to that, that kind of living tradition, 
can we make sense of both of these narratives together? I think that's the question that I'm actually trying to get at with my work more broadly. Mm -hmm. Mm. Oh, so, so what's next then? What, uh, what are you thinking about right now? What are the ideas? What are the projects? Like what, where, where are you going to take that, that project and that work in the future? Sure. So, I mean, I think that what I just, that story that I just told you about the Rastas and the Romos is an interesting story. I really am trying to think about how the past is lived as a present, um, as a set of relationships and what, how does that become a method for thinking about Addis Ababa, um, as a city that's, you know, the capital city, but it's also a contested city where, you know, again, there's a Romo claims around, um, what Addis Ababa is, but then there's other people who say Addis Ababa is a federal city, it should have no ethnic identity, etc. So I, I actually want to go back and think about how Addis Ababa was founded. Addis Ababa, as a, as a name, it actually means new flower. It was very much founded um, as a project to lead um, Ethiopia, the nation state, into, uh, into the modern world. Um, the question is who was displaced when it was founded, I want to ask that, but what 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 did that displacement mean? Um, you know, can how do we think about displacement in relation to um, the kinds of struggles Ethiopia was undertaking as it battled imperialism? And I'm, here I'm talking about imperialism of of Europe, the Italians, etc. So th- mm-hmm. I'm I'm really trying to think about the early history of Addis Ababa, you know, late 19th century until 1960s to rethink. Um, just what Ethiopia as a nation state has been, but also what ha- what has it meant to incorporate, um, you know, Ethiopians into a, a global capitalist world. I mean, I would also say what what Addis Ababa is in why Addis Ababa is interesting for me is because it marks this moment when um, Ethiopians become African, and but they also become right. black in many ways. And so by rethinking th- those founding moments of of Addis Ababa, I can also th- rethink the category Africa and the category Black as well. Does that, uh, yeah. It, it, it makes sense. It answered my question and it's it's great. I'm really excited to see where you're going to go with with that work and with this work in general. Um, and I think I African studies, the field, will have a lot to chew on um, um, with, with this current book and also with your next projects. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you shared a little bit of that with us today. Um, yeah, we've taken up enough of your time, so I guess we'll, we'll, we'll close the podcast. So again, for our listeners, I want to remind everyone, this was Eleni Santimizeleke talking about her recent book, Ethiopian Theory, Revolution and Knowledge Production, 1964-2016. The book came out last year with, uh, Brill, um, and a paperback version is about to come out with Haymarket in 2020. Get that one, get the paperback version. It has the cheaper price tag and it has the cool cover uh, that we just discussed in this podcast. And uh, yeah, Lady, thank you, thank you so much again for, for joining us today. I really, really love our conversation. Thank you for having me. It was really fun for me as well. <laughs>